Welcome to the Williamstown Church of Christ podcast. This is a sermon recording from one of our Sunday worship gatherings. We meet every Sunday at 10am on the corner of John Street and Douglas Parade, and we'd love to meet you. For more information, head to our website, willychurch.org.au. Enjoy and God bless you. This morning's Bible reading uh, comes from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 3, verses 20 through to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to weep. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. They said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the Lord who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Belzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him in. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. All right. Who here remembers Delta Goodrum's second album? Anyone? Delta Goodrum's second album, following up Innocent Eyes, uh, 14 times platinum hit, biggest, most highest selling album in the 2010s. Her follow up album, Mistaken Identity, wasn't as successful, but Mistaken Identity is the title of today's sermon. Um, I wonder here, has, I think most of us probably would have um, experienced a time before we've, we've mistaken someone's identity, that awkward moment when you're looking at someone for too long and then it's not your friend and it's just so awkward, like, I swear I thought you were someone else, I promise. Um, it, it can be awkward, mistaking identities. My, my friend Esmond, uh, he lives in Box Hill. And he does not own a bicycle. And that's important for this story. My friend Esmond lives in Box Hill, does not own a bicycle. And we were meeting up um, at a sweet cafe, Industry Beans in Fitzroy. And I live close enough to Fitzroy to ride my bicycle. So I rode my bike, met Esmond at Fitzroy. He drove from Box Hill. As we were leaving, I had my bike and we bumped into a colleague of his. And, and she, she said... Oh, Edmund, you rode your bike from Box Hill. That's amazing. And he was like, I, I didn't ride my bike. And somehow she moved on in the conversation or moved on 
he was trying to sort of deny this um, allegation that he rode his bike from Box Hill, but somehow she'd already believed this in her head. And now, he, he tells me most weeks, she still asks him how his bike riding is going, and, and he must be such an impressive cyclist riding from Box Hill to Fitzroy. Uh, she has mistaken his identity. Indeed. I think this passage today is, is about mistaken identities. And it's, it's a hard passage. It's a, it's a controversial story, or rather two controversial stories, with one sandwiched in between the other. If we look at, at the sort of the structure of the, the whole passage, you won't be able to read this, but we have one story sandwiched in, in between two scholars call this um, the Markin Sandwich. The Markin Sandwich. And, and this happens a few times. And it's where one story is, is split in two and, and forms this sort of beautiful brioche bun. That's, that's why that's in yellow. And then in the middle, the other story is the hamburger. And together, the brioche bun and a hamburger uh, form this one beautiful burger and it has something cool to say to us. So the bread outside is the story about Jesus and his family. And then the, the hamburger in the middle is the story of Jesus and the teachers of the law. And both Jesus' and Jesus' family and the teachers of the law are mistaken about who Jesus is and what he's doing. So let's get into the brioche bun first, which is going to mean we, we look at the top and the bottom together. So Mark 3, 20... Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So we've got up to, to here, this is the, getting towards the end of Mark 3, and we still see that Jesus' popularity is sky high. People are so keen to get a piece of Jesus that this, this crowd has gathered, and his disciples and himself are not even able to eat. Then, when Jesus family hears about this. They want to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. So Jesus' family think that he's, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. And most likely, what, what they want to do is stop the nonsense. Stop the shame he is bringing on the family. To take charge of him. Some translations say to seize him or to control him. And then in the, in the passage, in the sort of text, it moves to this other story. But we're going to jump ahead to the rest of the, the brioche. 31. Then, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. So at this house, Jesus' family arrived and they called to him. Right? And that's what you do when, when you're the mum. You call the son and you tell him to come to you. It's going to turn out, though, which is interesting, that, that Jesus is actually the one who does the calling. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus' family, the ones who are close to him, the ones who are, are blood relatives, they can't get close enough to him to speak. They're close in in lineage or close in, in family relations, but not close in, in presence physically, not close enough to, to be able to sort of get in touch. They're, they're outside looking. And then verse 33 and 34 are shocking. Jesus asked this crazy question, 
really controversial. Who are my mother and my brothers? They're just out there, right? And he goes, who are my mother and brothers? And then look at at 34. He looks around. He looks at those seated in a circle around him. And he says, here, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So in, in this moment, Jesus redefines the whole idea of family. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? The people who are here right now, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister and brother. This is, this is a burn, right? Jesus just burnt his family pretty Pretty harsh. He's denounced his family in a way, the ones who raised him. And if this is shocking or uncomfortable to you, that is good. All right. So who here is like finds that pretty uncomfortable that Jesus denounced his family? That's good. It should be shocking. If it's not shocking, what we need to do is is consider the context. Mark is writing two thousand years ago to an audience who definitely found this shocking. I think in Australia, sometimes we don't value family as highly as other cultures. And so, I know I can do this. Sometimes I can find Jesus' teaching on family quite comfortable. But, but Jesus' teaching here on family should make us uncomfortable. If, if you're comfortable with this, then maybe replace the idea of family with best friends or peers or whoever, whoever are the people who, most, who you most value for relational, physical, economic, emotional and social security. Those people, Jesus says, who are they? My real friends, my real peers, my real family are those who are here. Those who are gathered around me, listening to me now. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother and my sister. That's big, right? Jesus just redefined family as the people who are with him, the people who listen to Jesus, the people who are faithful and obedient to God's will as expressed in the teachings of Jesus. That's what God's will means there. God's will is coming to life in the teaching and the living of Jesus. And so whoever does God's will is the person who's faithful and obedient to Jesus and his teachings. And those people are the ones who are Jesus' brother, sister, and mother. So it's not about biology and blood, but it's discipleship that puts you in the family of Jesus. And so what's happened in in this first story, the brioche bun, is that Jesus' family mistook who he was and what he was doing. They thought he was crazy. And so they called out to him. They wanted to control him. But of course it turns out that Jesus is the one who calls people. And he calls anyone. Not just those who are familiar, not just those who are family. Jesus calls anyone. And those he calls, and those who respond, who follow, you are the family of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus' family wanted to control him, Jesus' new family are compelled by him. To live a new life that is the very will of God. So this, this first story is, 
is awkward news if you've got the perfect family. Right? And none of us have the perfect family, but if you've got a, a really great family, this is awkward news because Jesus reconstitutes what it means to be family. But if you've lost loved ones, or if you don't have a family, or if you're single or don't have children or can't have children, or you might be estranged from your family or anything that hurts, then this is good news. Because Jesus' idea of family is less about marriage and births and biology. Jesus' idea of family is about discipleship, apprenticeship and adoption. And everyone is invited. And so once again, like we'll keep seeing this in Jesus' teaching. It's awkward news for people where life's going really well. But it's amazingly good news for those who are poor and powerless and broken and struggling. So that's the first story, right? Jesus the, and his family. The brioche bun, the bread. And we're going to move now to the hamburger before we see why we want to eat it all together. So the hamburger in the middle. In this story, this story seems to run parallel. So I think it seems to happen at the same time as the family story and probably in the same house. And here, some teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is significant because Jerusalem is the epicenter, the capital of Israel and Jewish religion. So these, these teachers, these experts in the law, are, are the big dogs. And they come presumably because they've heard about what, what a ruckus Jesus is causing and they mistake his identity as well. Now instead of saying he's crazy, they say he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They recognise Jesus' power, what he's doing as real. But they attribute his power source not to Yahweh, but to Satan and the demons. And look at verse 23. Gracious, gentle Jesus. Jesus doesn't get defensive or strike back like I would. I would come back with like a label even worse. Like Beelzebub? Well, you're Zilzebub, you know? Or whatever. But Jesus is gracious. He responds by calling them over to him, because Jesus calls, remember. And he begins to speak to them in parables. And so this, this passage is the first time we get a Mark and Sandwich in Mark. This is also the first time we, we see parables in Mark. This is important. It's important when we're reading the Bible to, to understand this is both scripture and literature. It's, it's God's word to us, but it's also Mark's biography, written 2,000 years ago. And what's Mark doing? And why is this the first time we have a Mark and Sandwich? And what's a Mark and Sandwich? And why do parables come in now? This is all important to think about. So Jesus speaks in parables and he says, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. He's saying here, Hey, if I was in league with Satan and the demons, then the kingdom of Satan would be crumbling and me with it. He says it would be a divided kingdom, a divided house, and a divided house cannot stand. Verse 26, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And in fact, we know his end is coming, but not with the fall of Jesus too. Jesus rather stands in in direct opposition to Satan. And Jesus is dismantling the kingdom of darkness as he ushers in and brings the kingdom of God. 
Verse 27. He says, in fact. In fact, 27, just the one before. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So Satan is a strong man, but Jesus is a strong woman. And that's why, that's why we don't have to be scared of the devil, right? He is legit. He does have power, but Jesus is so much more powerful. And Jesus here, he's, he's referencing what John the Baptist said about him in Mark 1. John the Baptist said, one more powerful is coming. It also um, picks up Isaiah 49, who Mark uses a lot. And in Isaiah 49, God promised that as the stronger one, he would deliver Israel from its strong oppressors. So, so we have the devil, a strong man, but Jesus, the stronger man, coming in. He's way stronger than the devil. He's in opposition to Satan, and he's binding up the devil so that he can dismantle and plunder the kingdom of evil. This is good news. Dismantling and plundering the kingdom of evil means he's getting rid of sickness, sin, oppression, and all that is wrong with the world, and bringing in the kingdom of God. And then we get to the really awkward bit. Is everyone ready for the really awkward bit? This is the bit we're all a bit scared of. He says some serious words to the teachers of the law, but we've got to understand this in the context of the immediate story. Because first thing Jesus actually says, before we get to any unforgivable sins, Jesus says, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. That's the first thing Jesus says. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. And this verse makes sense for us, right, within our theological framework. We, we know and believe that, that Jesus offers forgiveness for everyone, that whoever, whosoever believes in him should have eternal life, that by his grace he wipes our slate clean. And we're comfortable with that. But then verse 29 is extremely uncomfortable. He says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And this is where we all like freak out and like wonder if we've ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit and it's uncomfortable. If you're worried about that, then you're probably not in danger of that. I'll, I'll get, to, get to why. The key to understanding this verse is actually verse 30. Because verse 30 is something we don't often see in Mark. It's an editorial comment. Like when you're, we're watching a director's commentary... Mark steps in and he says, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So Jesus says this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit thing because of what the teachers of the law said about him. Because they attributed the mighty deeds of Jesus, who is speaking and acting with the power and authority of Yahweh. Because they attributed this to Satan. They mistake the identity of the source of Jesus' power. And that's why he says that. N.T. Wright, he says, If you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent to the operation. When you start thinking 
that the work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, is actually the work of the devil. Whosoever does that will not have eternal life. And so, so we've got to think, and, and if, we're, if we're worried, don't be worried. Because it's not one action, there's not one action that can deem you unforgivable. Because in verse 28, Jesus says, people can be forgiven all their sins. People can be forgiven every slander they utter. If you can be forgiven every slander you utter, then you can be forgiven blasphemy. So this is not one action, which means you can't be forgiven. What's unforgivable is that if you believe Jesus and his work really belongs to Satan, then you will never get in the way of grace. You'll never receive forgiveness, which only comes through Jesus, because you will have rejected Jesus and his Holy Spirit. And therefore, of course, reject the forgiveness and eternal life which only comes from him. So don't freak out, all right? Unless you're a Satanist. Then... But even Jesus welcomes Satanists. There's repentance, forgiveness... Just make sure you receive his welcome, his offer of forgiveness, because that is where eternal life lies. I hope that makes sense. Does, do people feel a bit comfortable with that? That's the hamburger. So together we've, we've got the brioche bun and, and the hamburger, and together we have the full Markham sandwich. I hear um, Charlie Aitken brought some brioche buns home from Macca's when he had the clothes shift this week, so... Maybe um, head to Charlie's for a Mark and sandwich, if you don't mind. But what is, what is Mark saying? If, if this, this sandwich thing's happening, what is Mark saying by putting these two stories together and when we eat this whole hamburger, what is God saying to us today? When we eat this whole burger, I think what it means is no matter how close you are to Jesus, no matter if you're an expert in the law or if you're Jesus' own family, you can mistake who Jesus is and what he is doing. So radical, so extraordinary is the message and ministry of Jesus that if we have our own agenda driving our desires, we can miss who Jesus is. It's by being near him, by listening to him, by obeying his teaching, doing the will of God, that we really know him and are close to him. And this is what we've been, been seeing and calling in all of Mark, discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus. It's not educational status. It's not how much you know or who you grew up with or how you were raised. None of that makes you. It's discipleship to Jesus. It's through discipleship to Jesus that you are made. And you'll have eyes and ears and hearts to see and hear and know who Jesus really is. Jesus wasn't out of his mind. He was the Messiah. Jesus wasn't the evil one. He was the incarnate God. But if we let our own agendas, if we let our own desires shape who we say Jesus is, then we can miss his true identity. We can begin to create Jesus in our own image. And then when he doesn't do what we want, when Jesus' message and, and ministry doesn't fit to, to what we want, we decide that that mustn't be Jesus. Well, that's not the Jesus I know. But when we, when we let Jesus himself tell us who he is, when we walk with him, or with him, obey and live and listen, then we begin to see more and more who this incredible Jesus is. 
And when we see, when we see Jesus for who he really is, that will change us and it will stretch us in ways that are challenging and uncomfortable. And so, so using these two stories, we can see that if we see Jesus for who he really is, it will change our understanding of people and family. And that can be really uncomfortable, all right? It also will change our concept of kingdoms, which can be challenging. So we might begin to see that we are in a battle between the kingdom of darkness and light, evil and the kingdom of God. We might begin to see that nothing is neutral and this battle between flesh and spirit always going on is real. Now, of course, Jesus has won. His kingdom has come. He has plundered and is plundering the kingdom of darkness. So we don't need to be scared, but we do need to be prepared. Put on the armour of God, pray without ceasing, be an apprentice of Jesus. So I want to to finish by talking again about apprentices of Jesus. Because all of Mark and all of life is about this idea, disciples or apprentices. Now has anyone done an apprenticeship in a trade before? Has anyone done an apprenticeship in a trade a few people, that's, that's great. Um, I know Riley Carr, he's not here today. He's in an apprenticeship at the moment with you, Trevor. Um, he's doing an electrician's apprenticeship, is that right? And I, you might have noticed by now, I don't know a lot about trades. I'm more of an inner suburbs, donuts and coffee sort of guy. Like that's, that's my jam. I did kill a spider or helped kill a spider on the weekend. So, like, you know, I'm a bit of a tradie. <laughs> We were, we were away, we were away in, the, in the bush and there was this huge huntsman and I, I got one of its legs and then my friend did the rest. So. But Jesus, um, Jess dogged me in. Like we, were, we were all there with friends and everyone was pretty scared and Jess was like, come on, Lockie. And I was like, oh, I guess I've got to impress my wife. So. The next day there was a frog in someone's car and I was just like so full of adrenaline, adrenaline to impress Jess. I, I cleared out the frog as well. I didn't kill that one, but... Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm working there, but I don't know much about trades. But I do know. I do know that it's not the logo on your hat or your T-shirt. It's not the sticker on your U or the job title. It's not the position which makes you an electrician. I also have heard a bit about trade school or TAFE. And the classroom learning is a, is a helpful part of the apprenticeship. But there's a lot more to it than just that. And it's, it's not the position, nor is it the classroom, which makes you an electrician. It's in being an apprentice. Doing, watching, listening, learning, practicing. It's in all of that where, where Riley Carr becomes the best electrician in all of the western suburbs. And we have two warnings in this passage. We have the warning, don't bank on your knowledge alone. Knowing Jesus is more than knowledge. It's through relationship that we really know him. And we're warned, don't bank on your position. Being close to Jesus is more than growing up in the church or being a member of the church or having a Christian family or or having close connections to, to other Christians or whatever it is. It's not through position but through apprenticeship that we really know Jesus. We we are with him. We listen to him. We watch, we learn, we practice. So this week and this life, 
Be careful not to mistake Jesus' identity because you banked on your knowledge or you banked on your position. That's the warning. But hear the glorious invitation to discipleship, to be with him, to follow, to live and learn and be apprentices of Jesus because it's those people who, who Jesus calls family. And everyone is invited to the family of Jesus, the family of God. And there's no better place to be. Let's stand up and we're going to pray together. Thank you, Jesus, that you've called us to be your family. Thank you that it is through discipleship, through apprenticeship, being with you, following you, listening and learning and having a go, that we are made your family. Jesus, we repent when we, we trust our position in, in the church or in the, the culture or whatever it is. We repent of when we've trusted our knowledge and we seek to be with you. For that is where you've called us family and friends. Amen.